This is the Bob Zadek Show on Talk 910, San Francisco's talk station. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bob Zadek Show. I'm your host, Bob Zadek, every Sunday at noon at Talk 910. Thanks so much for listening. I am your host, Bob Zadek. 800-345-5639 is the way to join the Libertarian Conversation. We are the only live Libertarian talk radio show on the air all weekend. The show of ideas, not attitude. 800-345-5639. Glad to be back with you, my friends, after a week off on vacation, but I'm sure happy to be back. Many of our young men and women have their first experience of being away from home when they attend college. In college, presumably uh, some, or hopefully a fair amount, but at least some of the course material will include uh, basic principles of what I might call civics, political life in America. Hopefully, uh, these young men and women will have will have what they learned in high school on the Constitution be reinforced. The principles, uh, the core uh, principles of constitutional life in America will be reinforced. The Bill of Rights, they will might be reminded of the Bill of Rights, uh, the right to be confronted by your accuser, the right to a trial, a uh, criminal trial uh, by jury of a jury of your peers, uh, basic rights of due process. So these young men and women will Many of them, hopefully a great number of them, will learn about what civil life is like in America. Then they will leave the classroom and live in the most unconstitutional environments in America, which is life on America's college campuses, where as you will learn in today's show, students are deprived of many of the protections, constitutional protections, that the rest of us are afforded. But yet, for the four years or more that these students live in colleges, they are deprived in the most shocking way of most of their constitutional protections. This was brought to my attention when, several months ago, uh, I read an article entitled Guilty Until Proven Innocent. The article was written by Kathy Young. Kathy Young uh, is the author of two books, uh, Ceasefire, Why Women and Men Must Join Forces to Achieve True Equality and Growing Up in Moscow. She's a regular op-ed columnist of the Boston Globe, the Detroit News. She's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and many other mainstream media outlets. Kathy has been gracious enough to join us for an hour of her time this Sunday to discuss 
the often shocking and to me enraging story of life on college campuses, guilty until proven innocent. Kathy, welcome to the show this afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Now, Kathy, uh, in your the article that got my attention, which you wrote in Reason Magazine, you started the article with the story of Peter Yu. And just to set the tone for this show, uh, tell my friends the story of Peter Yu, and that will explain to the audience the importance and the thrust of today's show. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Peter is a student at or was a student at Vassar College, uh, who was, by the way, a Chinese national uh, who was studying in the United States. And it's kind of ironic, you know, given that he's coming from China, a communist country, to a country where, you know, presumably we respect civil liberties and individual rights. And then he finds himself in the middle of this case. So basically, he strikes up a friendship with a young woman uh, who is uh, a fellow member of the um, college rowing team. Um, they uh, have a conversation at a party. She's only recently broken up with her boyfriend. They both have a few drinks. Uh, then after the party, uh, they head over to a campus bar, have a sort of makeup session there, and uh, then uh, go back to the dorm room. Uh, and by the way, the, much of this is uh, there's a currently pending lawsuit in which most of these facts are really undisputed by both sides. So, you know, I'm not really just giving you Peter's version of the story. Um, they um, end up uh, having some more sexual activity. Uh, Peter, by the way, claims that the woman was the one who initiated it. He actually was previously inexperienced in sex, and supposedly, you know, she was the one who told him that, you know, he shouldn't worry and she knows what to do. Now, this is obviously his account. Um, they end up in bed. Uh, at some point during this sexual encounter, uh, his roommate walks in, and then um, the girl kind of gets embarrassed and decides that you know she really wants to stop and she's going home. Uh, he doesn't make again by mutual account. She does. Uh, he doesn't make any attempt to prevent her from leaving. She gets thrust, goes home. Um, the next day, uh, he uh, messages her on Facebook to ask if everything's okay, and she actually apologizes and says, you know, I'm really sorry, I just really wasn't ready for a new relationship yet after breaking up so recently, and, you know, I hope I didn't ruin our friendship and so on. So she's the one who's saying this to him. Uh, again, undisputed messages are on the record. Um Another year goes by, during which they exchange several emails and messages, about half of which are initiated by her. And once again, you know, all very friendly, all very conciliatory. At one point, she actually invites him over to dinner, uh, which she declines. And then, uh, I believe almost a year to the day, like this would have been the deadline for doing this, uh, after the initial event, uh, the young woman files a charge within the disciplinary system at Vassar accusing him of basically sexual assault or, in the language of the disciplinary code, non-consensual sex. Um, she doesn't mention, by the way, uh, when she filed this charge that she sent him all those messages. Uh, so he gets contacted by the uh, investigator, 
uh, uh, this is a uh, Title IX gender equity investigator, and this is officially um, an investigation under you know, Title IX, which mandates equal um, educational opportunity. And uh, under this legislation, uh, basically sexual assault is classified as a form of discrimination against women. Uh, we're basically depriving them of equal educational opportunity. This is Title IX uh, so of, of, of a this is Title IX of a of a federal statute that's been around for quite some time. Yes, there is a federal statute. Yeah, and uh, that has been the case for some time. Uh, now, the investigator contacts Peter and says, you know, this is what's going on. This young woman is saying that you sexually assaulted her. And Peter says, well, wait a minute. You know, I have these Facebook messages from her, and uh, I think there were also some emails. Shows the messages to, to the investigator. The investigator asks the young woman about those messages, and she says, oh, you know, I was just, uh, I was really fearful, and, uh, you know, I, I was too afraid to uh, confront the fact that he had sexually assaulted me, so, you know, I was just really acting out of fear and confusion, and that's why I sent those messages. Uh, Peter says, you know, please question my roommate. You know, my roommate was there, and he saw that she was not restrained in any way. He saw that she was, you know, not unconscious and being sexually assaulted while passed out. Uh, the investigator talks to uh, Peter's roommate. He talks to the young woman's roommate. Uh, and there's also the, the, the uh, corroborating witnesses are basically two young women, uh, also from the rowing team, who claim that they saw uh, Peter and this young woman walking together to his apartment and that she looked very intoxicated. Uh, that, that, is, that is the only corroborating evidence. Uh, and the, the only claim, by the way, there's no claim that there was any kind of use of force. Uh, there's basically a claim that she was too intoxicated to consent to sex. Uh, now, again, this is not a case where we're, you know, the, the claim is, as, you know, in the, in the recent case of Steubenville, it got a lot of attention. There you had a pretty good argument that, you know, this young woman was basically most of the time when the activity occurred was actually passed out and, you know, in no position to either consent or deny consent. And I can certainly see the argument there that, you know, if somebody is unconscious or semi-conscious, you know, and somebody else has sexual contact with them, yes, that is clearly sexual assault. You know, I, I really have no argument with that. And I, I don't really think too many other people would. In this case, we have a woman who is, you know, walking on her own two feet, you know, supposedly leaning on the guy's arm, but even so, there's no claim that he was, for instance, you know, dragging her down the street or anything like that. Uh, uh, walking on her own two feet back to, uh, to his dorm room, uh, you know, conscious and, you know, aware enough to do that, uh, conscious and aware enough to interrupt the activity after the roommate walked in and basically decided that she was leaving. Uh, so, you know, there, there's really no question of her being actually incapacitated. There's a question of her, you know, presumably having her judgment sort of muddied enough that she, could, you know, engaged in sexual activity, which she would not have engaged in when sober. Uh, and the important so point is, the, the, the important point is, is that for an entire year after this isolated event, there was no behavior by either party that would indicate anything unpleasant happened. There was right, no... no and if anything else, 
she was concerned in the initial messages. The young woman sounded concerned that, you know, she had been, you know, rude or, you know, uh, or, or something by, by leaving in the middle of this. And she was apologizing for that and basically explaining, you know, her behavior as being confused over a recent breakup. Um so uh, basically, this case goes to a hearing before a, a panel of three professors. And by the way, one thing that I can't remember if I mentioned in my article, but this young woman is also the daughter of a faculty member. You didn't so mention that. Actually, Kathy, you did not mention that in your article, but it was in other material uh, right. that's publicly available. And what happened yeah, was— yeah, and that is an Fact, isn't it that basically this case was being heard by the, by three colleagues of this young woman's father? Well, what happened was uh, Peter Yu asked that. It, and I should mention, because um, the point of your article and the point of this show is not about an isolated incident, but about okay. the process of handling these types of complaints. And what happened was uh, Vassar has something called an interpersonal violence panel. And yeah, under yeah. the rules right. of Vassar College, uh, a student is allowed to request that in this, quote, jury, there be other students. And another yeah, student... In, in Peter's case, he was denied that. He and was denied that. One reason I didn't even go into those details is that, you know, you certainly have other cases in which you do have student jurors where, where they still end up being sort of kangaroo courts. This one was kind of especially bad in that respect. And uh, the other thing, and this is actually, this is a pattern that exists uh, that not only exists across different schools, but is really pretty much imposed by uh, by the federal government now. Uh, Peter was denied a chance to have an attorney, so you know he was in a position where he was forced to cross-examine this young woman himself. And it should be mentioned. And- I want to remind the audience: we're talking about a Chinese national in America probably for the first time, studying at VASA, and he now is is imposed, is put in the position of being what is in effect a criminal defense attorney on his own behalf, where the stakes are very high. Yeah, that is a very good point. And uh, now what happens next, according to Peter, and there's no transcript of this hearing, but, you know, he basically claims that every time he would start asking sort of pointed questions like, you know, why did you send me those messages or, you know, something like that, the young woman would just start crying and then the uh, members of the quote-unquote jury would essentially say that's enough of this, you know, let's move on to something else. So he was essentially denied a chance to properly question his accuser. And I'd like and to remind that- I'd like to remind the audience that in this case and remember please my friends remember this is not being discussed because it is an isolated albeit interesting story but That's rather right. this is representative as Kathy will explain of what goes on on college campuses. So this is not yeah. about the story of PDU. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now so I just want to mention that the quote Jury, close quote. Now, remember, the the woman whose last name was Walker, her, her Mary, father, Mary Walker, I believe. her father was a faculty member. And there was no and, and there was not it was not clear whether the jury 
were colleagues of her father. They certainly. Right, right. Well, technically, they were all colleagues of her father in that they're faculty members of the same college, whether they personally knew him or not. You know, at a big school like that, they may not necessarily. But, you know, certainly the appearance of bias, at the very least, is definitely there. And at the end of this hearing, Peter Yu ends up getting expelled from Vassar, you know, just getting summarily expelled. And uh, that's it. You know, that is basically it. And now, obviously, when we're talking about this being a kind of de facto kind of criminal trial, there is no possibility of going to jail as a result of this. So in that sense, the stakes are lower. But essentially what happens if you get expelled under this kind of proceeding is, uh, you know, this ends up being a block mark on your record if you try to apply to another school is going to be on your record that you got expelled from, you know, Vassar or, you know, any other school. Or try to get a job. Or try to get a job. Yeah, yeah. And it does go on your record that you were expelled for a sexual offense. So, you know, what are people going to think when they see that? You know, or are you a rapist? You know, are you someone someone who's, you know, running around campus exposing himself? You know, it's it's going to be something that is very, very well may haunt you for the rest of your life. And uh, so this is really, you're kind of acquiring the de facto equivalent of a criminal record, really, in a, in a sense. And, uh, you know, this is what happened to Peter. Uh, Peter Yu is actually now suing Vassar, and there have been several lawsuits that have been filed uh, just this year, there was actually a similar lawsuit that was settled the other day um, by uh, a college in Ohio. And there have actually been several lawsuits like this that have been kind of settled quietly. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there are, and I, it is kind of ironic that Peter specifically, uh, Peter Yu, is suing Vassar under Title IX, which is also the, you know, law that mandates these sexual assault investigations. And he is saying that the system at Vassar is so biased against males in cases of accusation of sexual assault that it essentially amounts to gender discrimination. So that's kind of a novel twist on sex discrimination law. And there's a similar kind of um, sex discrimination lawsuit at uh, St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia. Uh, There's a couple of others as well. Uh, There's a basketball player named Jasmine Wells um, who is – uh, suing a uh, suing suing a university that got expelled them, uh, and this was um, this was I believe at, at the University of Ohio, uh, where the, the prosecutor actually said you know that he had looked into the charges against Jasmine Wells. And, uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, Desmond Wells. I'm sorry, I got the name wrong, but, uh, yeah. Uh, he looked into the case and he said, you know, this is a case where the, uh, I don't see any grounds for filing a criminal complaint of sexual assault. And nonetheless, you know, the college, I just goes ahead with this. So let's take and, a step back, uh, just a step back to look at this in perspective. What we have is we have um, males on college campuses that are exposed to charges that have that must have lifetime repercussions on this young male's um 
ability to get a job, go to college, whatever. And so the process where the stakes are high, one would hope the process is fair, objective, non-political, and with all the safeguards one would expect when the stakes are so high. And the point of Kathy's piece, and we will get into this, is for clearly political reasons and, most importantly, reasons that emanate from, of all places, Washington, D.C., there is a wanton disregard of of constitutional rights so that and in this case it's just this show happens to be about the damage to men because this is a very anti-male process as you will see that we have college campuses which have a process and we are focusing on process which has a profound anti-male bias with lifetime detrimental effects on males who get swept into the system. This is Bob Zadick. I'm talking with Kathy Young who has written a wonderful piece entitled Guilty and Improving Innocent. It was published in the January 2014 uh edition of Reason Magazine, 800-345-5639, 800-345-5639 to join the conversation. Now, Kathy, uh, in your opinion, we, we start with, we have a process today that really has, and and I'll ask you to explain this, uh, an anti-male bias. Now, how did this happen? Do you have any, uh, everything of this nature tends to have uh, a political stain on it. It emanates from politics, but we have a few minutes until we go to break. So let's start now. Uh, How did we get here where we have, uh, and I guess, well, it's a very long story. It's it's something that starts in uh, the 1980s. And, you know, it's something that did I believe grow out of a genuine problem, which is that, you know, there were at one point many colleges really did sweep, you know, real sexual assaults, uh, particularly some of the stuff that went on in fraternities and at the fraternity parties. There was a lot of stuff that was getting kind of swept under the rug, and a lot of the time the young women who may have been, you know, genuinely sexually assaulted were made to feel that, you know, it was their fault because they went to this party and got drunk. So there were there were some very real, I think, injustices that were going on. And unfortunately, a lot of the time when we have these uh, social justice crusades, we end up with an overreaction where we kind of, you know, the pendulum swings so far that it turns into an injustice on the other side. Uh, there's a kind of mindset in a lot of um, feminism today that there really shouldn't be a presumption of innocence in uh, cases of uh, sexual assault, that if the young woman says she was sexually assaulted, then, you know, to not believe the victim is a really cardinal offense. And when you have this kind of mindset being applied to these cases on campus, uh, it certainly creates a very combustible situation. And um, I, I don't know if you have time right now to get into Washington's role in all this, but... We'll you know, do that, that after is, break. We have a go, go to break in a minute, yeah, okay, Kathy. Well, we'll, when we come we'll back, we'll discuss it. the Washington's effect on all this. But we're going to... So we have about a minute to go, Kathy, then we'll go to break. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so, 
1980s, uh, there was some uh, a feminist researcher named Mary Koss did a study which got a lot of resonance saying that one in four women on college campuses have been victims of rape or attempted rape, um, which is, you know, obviously a pretty staggering figure. A lot of people looked into those figures, you know, found that they, they include a lot of cases that are very, very ambiguous, cases that are primarily about, you know, sex occurring when the woman is drunk and when she believes afterwards that she didn't really give her consent to this. Uh, no real distinction made in the study between, again, cases of genuine incapacitation and you know, cases of just someone being too drunk to kind of really know what they're doing. Uh, there were a lot of other things that questions that were raised about that study, including the fact that the majority of women in that study went specifically asked, you know, did you think it was rape? They didn't think so. The, the, the there were all sorts of leading questions that were asked by investigators. There have been several uh, other studies since then that kind of do the same thing. Kathy, we're going to have to go to break. I hate to interrupt, Kathy. We've got to go to break now. Uh, station requires it. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Bob Zadek talking with Kathy Young. Guilty until proven innocent. A sexual assault on college campuses. Are the scales balanced against the male? 800-345-5639 to join the conversation back in 90 seconds. This is the Bob Zadek Show on Talk 910, San Francisco's talk station. See, that 90 seconds didn't take that long to go by. Thanks for staying tuned. This is Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show every Sunday at noon at Talk 910, thanks so much for listening. 800-345-5639. 800-345-5639. To join the conversation I'm having with Kathy Young. Kathy Young wrote a wonderful, thoroughly researched article entitled Guilty Until Proven Innocent, where Kathy explains um, the kangaroo courts uh, that... Uh, kangaroo trials that take place on American college campuses uh, when the subject of sexual assault is before the tribunal. Uh, this is a process that, as you have seen and will see, has a profound and grossly unfair anti-male bias. Uh, the the process... Um, and the headlines of this anti-male bias is that a lot of the anti-male bias is not one which the colleges arrive at on their own, but rather it is either imposed upon them or they, are, they the colleges, are strongly uh, encouraged to have this anti-male bias because of specific federal legislation and because of political pressures from Washington. One might ask oneself, why in the world does the federal government um, need to be involved in something as local as what goes on on a college campus. Why isn't this a matter for simply local law enforcement to be involved in? Why is Washington involved? And the reason is because Washington is involved in every aspect of everybody's life. Nothing is too local to escape Washington's grasp. And that is today's topic, 800-345-5639, to join my conversation with uh, Kathy. So, Kathy, uh, you were explaining before the break um, how we got here 
how we got right, to a position right. where there is uh, why is there not simply a fair, objective process by which these right. accusations in which neither side should be presumed to be wrong or right, but rather we oh, start absolutely. with tabula blanca and we determine who's right and who's wrong. Right. And, you know, I, I do want to say that this is not really solely the result of Washington's interference, because a lot of colleges have been moving down this road on their own. You know, some of these cases happened before uh, the recent uh, kind of Washington campaign uh, started. Uh, and I'll uh, move on in a minute to what Washington has been doing in the past couple of years. But this has been going on, again, since the 80s at a lot of different colleges, uh, a lot of Schools and universities, under pressure from on-campus feminist activists, have been instituting these very draconian um, uh, sort of sexual conduct codes. Uh, and, and again, this is something that most people, I think, aren't really aware of, uh, where uh, sexual assault or non-consensual sex is really defined extremely broadly uh, to cover, you know, what what a lot of people would kind of consider to be normal interaction where there isn't necessarily explicit, you know, may I do this, you know, may I do that uh, kind of questioning going on and there's no explicit consent and people just sort of, you know, uh, do things um, with kind of implicit signals and, uh, you know, the sort of give and take that uh, it doesn't necessarily depend on explicit communication. And this is something that a lot of these activists have been saying is, is really wrong because it creates the, um, the, the uh, kind of opportunity for a lot of misunderstandings. And, and it should be mentioned, Kathy, and- Kathy, it also should be mentioned that um, there is something, something a bit special about these accusations which are based upon uh, quote, non-consensual sex or sexual activity or sexual assault, and that is that there are rarely many witnesses. This is oh, usually... Yeah, exactly. Usually yeah, there, there are, are two no people witness. alone in some, and often inebriated to one degree or another. So this, so it's basically the most classic of who you're going to believe, and there should not be any presumption. You have to look at what facts there are and do the best you can, but without a presumption. There are no witnesses, but there is also, because in, in the kind of more traditional, so to speak, you know, rape cases, you will often have material evidence such as, you know, bruising, torn clothing, if there is violence used, uh, uh, any sort of traces of violence or use of force. And these are cases in which, again, we're not really talking about that. We're talking about cases of inebriation. We're talking about cases in which, for instance, uh, and, and this is, I'm not, you know, getting this off the top of my head, it's something that Yale University has given in a recent document as examples of the kind of thing that would be considered non-consensual activity, where, for instance, uh, you know, the two people are making out, and, and the, the Yale examples are all sort of very studiously gender-neutral, but, you know, in practice, this is mostly used against you know, males in cases involving female alleged victims. So basically, two people are sort of engaging in some sort of, you know, pre-sexual activity, so to speak, you know, uh, kissing and so on. And at a certain point, uh, one person, presumably the woman, says, oh, you know, I'm really not sure we should be doing this. 
And then, uh, you know, they stop for a while, and then the, the other person kind of resumes the physical advances once again. And this time, the, 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 the presumed victim doesn't actually say anything. And, you know, maybe she kind of moves back a little, but, you know, doesn't really make any move to physically get out of there. There's no mention in the scenario that Yale has has given as an example of, you know, her being physically restrained in any way. So basically, it's really just kind of persistent advances, you know, when a person has expressed any kind of doubt or reluctance. So really, if you're, if you're sort of making out and one person says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure, and you continue the advances, no mention of any kind of use of physical force, uh, you know, you, it was something that could be legitimately interpreted as, well, you know, the other person eventually changed their mind and, you know, deciding to go ahead with it. So now uh, this kind of thing is classified as non-consensual sex. And, again, obviously there wouldn't be any physical evidence of this um, uh, there's no even requirement of any kind of physical force or coercion being used. And this is the kind of thing that that ends up before these campus tribunals. And it should be, um, Kathy, I want to just mention, at the risk of overstating the obvious, in matters of intimacy, everything is so – or many – I. Many events are very subtle. And when you have oh, yeah, a yeah, long-term exactly. relationship with somebody, um, a marital relationship, there's all kinds of eye movements and hand movements that the other side oh, yeah, can yeah, interpret yeah. accurately because you know your partner. But these are invariably or often almost total strangers where there is no understanding of the subtlety. So you're expected to interpret the most subtle activities as being consent or non-consent. It almost is impossible to, to make those judgments with somebody who you may have just met. And yet these cases turn on with a bias they turn oh, on yeah, yeah, whether there was consent in the most subtle way imaginable. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I certainly agree. And and some of these, when you read some of these Yale examples, uh, I think they put out like eight scenarios of possible non-consensual sex, in which I think there were maybe one or two that really did clearly involve, you know, somebody being physically coerced into sex, or, you know, so where sexual contact going on when a person is uh, clearly, you know, drunk to the point of actually being disoriented and incapacitated. Yeah, you know, those are, those are pretty clear cut. But the rest of them really do rely on things like, you know, um, basically cross signals and, uh, you know, somebody not paying close enough attention to the others, kind of nonverbal signals and body language. So really, there, there, is, there is a certain sense in which, you know, we're almost kind of expecting men, again, because despite the gender-neutral language, this is primarily directed at males, we're almost expecting men to be mind readers here. And we're kind of saying that, you know, the woman doesn't even really have the responsibility to firmly and clearly say, no, I really don't want this, or, you know, to physically just get up and remove herself from the situation if she doesn't want to be in it. Uh, again, you know, in a situation in which there's no indication of any kind of physical restraint. 
And uh, a lot of the uh, arguments that are being made by the feminists kind of ironically end up being really patronizing to women in the sense that we have explanations like, oh, well, you know, a lot of the time women are kind of socialized not to be too assertive or, you know, not to, um, you know, be too negative and they're afraid to hurt somebody's feelings. Well, you know, first of all, I think that's really a kind of, uh, you know, wild overgeneralization about women. And, I mean, really, if you look at even the very kind of traditional times when, um, you know, the, the norms uh, of female behavior were much more uh, kind of sexist than they are today, even then, it was always considered perfectly acceptable, you know, for a woman to slap a guy's face if, you know, if you got too fresh, as you know they used to say in those days. So I think you know this idea that women are these you know, wilting violets who uh, cannot decisively say no to a guy if he's doing something that they, that the woman doesn't like. I think really is kind of demeaning to women, and I, that's another reason why I why this concerns me. Obviously, there is the injustice to men, and I think that's. You know, no one really wins, I think, when you uh, pit one gender against the other like that and uh, uh, kind of make men the losers in this. But on the other hand, I really think that this is promoting a very, very demeaning view of women. And, uh, you know, I think we, in uh, in the year 2014, I think we really can and should expect women to be able to stand up for themselves, you know, not in the face of, you know, no one saying, you know, if a guy is... Uh, you know, threatening you with serious violence, you should resist. As you know, as was the case at one point. You know, there was a time when we had rape laws that actually said, you know, if you, if you do not physically resist, you know, to the utmost of your ability against uh, actual violence, you know, then uh, sometimes there were legal cases in which. Uh, basically, a woman's submission to violence or threats of violence wasn't from Britain's consent because she didn't fight back enough. Nobody wants to go back to those days, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure. And that was bad. But when we now have a situation in which, you know, even clearly saying no is uh, seen by some people as too much to ask of women, uh, I really think we, we kind of need to ask really in this situation. How how are we seeing women? You know, Kathy, as, uh, a, as an attorney, uh, I perked up. Uh, I, what I learned uh, that really got my attention uh, from your piece was, um, and again, the governmental involvement and the uh, the process of these campus trials. And one could ask yourself, why in the world does college, do colleges get involved at all in what is what should be a judicial proceeding as opposed to simply turning the whole thing over to law enforcement a separate topic but what uh, you pointed out there is a handbook which um, has been federally sponsored, I believe. It was written up in FIRE, an organization uh, that I follow. Oh, quite you mean closely. the Stanford one? Yes, uh, where they yeah, I'm given... I'm not sure that that's federally sponsored, so I don't really want to say something that I don't have firm information about. Yeah, this this was... Uh, the handbook uh, about how to be on a... The handbook about how to be on a jury if you're... Yeah, yeah, these were training materials for uh, for these uh, for students who are going to be on a disciplinary panel on a sexual assault case. And uh, there was text in there that was taken from a book 
about abuse of men. So, you know, it's really kind of like there, there's this presumption from the beginning that you're going to be dealing with men who are abusive. And uh, the, the text basically said uh, that, uh, first of all, that being logical and, uh, re- and apparently reasonable... And persuasive. Logical and persuasive. Yeah, logical and persuasive is is basically the hallmark of an abuser, uh, which is really kind of mind-boggling. And yeah, I mean, now I'm let me just interrupt, C- Kathy. This is really important, but this is instruction material given to young students, college students, right. who are told when you are on a quote jury and you are trying to decide whether the male was guilty of sexual assault. When you're on the jury, you are told that if the male, because you're going to hear the male's testimony, if he is logical and persuasive, that probably that is a presumption that he's a sexual predator. Now, right, how right. biased and can that be? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's more than that. In the same materials, it says explicitly that in general you should be very skeptical toward the accused male's claim of innocence because the vast majority of these accusations are truthful. So, you know, from the beginning, you're kind of setting up these student jurors to feel that, you know, the overwhelming probability is that these accusations are true. You know, and that's uh, th- th- that's really kind of mind-boggling if you think about it, because you know, really talk about prejudging the case. Um, uh, now, moving on to specifically Washington's role, because that was something that we wanted to yes. talk about before the break. Thank you. Uh, okay, so this has been going on in various forms, you know, for uh, for about, for about twenty years, I would say. Though this is when colleges started setting up these kind of alternative disciplinary systems for dealing with sexual assault cases. And then uh, there were several complaints from women who felt that their cases were not handled well enough, who felt that their charges were kind of swept under the rug. Um, Several of these cases in 2011 got taken up by the uh, the Justice Department as sex discrimination cases. And then around the same time, in April 2011, uh, the Department of Education uh, Office of Civil Rights sent out a letter to the presidents of colleges and universities about the uh, handling of sexual assault cases, sexual assault and sexual harassment. Uh, and there were several important things that they very strongly recommended. This is not quite a requirement, although now I think it really pretty much is. Uh, but one of the things that was really most important um, is the recommendation that the standard of proof in these cases be shifted from um, uh, clear and convincing evidence, which traditionally has been, in terms of campus discipline, the standard for evaluating all kinds of complaints against students, uh, clear and convincing evidence, uh, and the recommendation from the federal government in 2011 was that they shift to the standard of the preponderance of the evidence. Uh, which is really the lowest, as an attorney, I'm sure you know this, this is the lowest standard of proof in a legal case that you can use, 
Which basically, it really, all it means is that the, uh, the, the triers of fact, the, the jurors, believe that there is a slightly greater probability, like there's a 51% probability in their minds that the evidence favors, uh, the, favors the complainant. So this is now the standard under which um, college juries are supposed to evaluate these cases. And um, earlier, uh, I, I, oh, uh, last year, I think last March, uh, there was another letter, a joint letter from the um, Department of Education and the Department of Justice, which once again reiterated that the standard is the only one that is appropriate, and basically pretty much saying that colleges which do not use the standard, the lower standard of proof in evaluating sexual assault complaints, uh, stand to lose their federal funds. Uh, now, Kathy, I want to just—I other... want to just—what you said is so important, and there are so many, um, if I may, libertarian principles involved. First of all, first of all, there is no dispute that the feminist lobby is a potent political force, certainly in the Democratic Party. There is no equivalent countervailing male political lobby. It doesn't exist. Therefore, no, we have true. we have one side with very, very potent political power and the and no opposition. Second of all, we have the process of the federal government using the coercive power of federal grants to influence what happens on a college campus. Second principle, the federal government shouldn't be involved. Third principle, why in the world are colleges being dragged into becoming quasi-judicial bodies. They are not skilled. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. They are not skilled in doing so. It's hard enough to run a college without being able to run a private judicial system. But yet colleges are forced to do so, again, uh, under the... Pe- pressure from Washington. And lastly, in matters that I have said, Kathy's point is well taken, this is not a criminal proceeding, but tell that to the male who's accused, because to him, he has the same taint as if he was convicted of a crime. So here we have a quasi-criminal proceeding where in the criminal justice system, there are overwhelming safeguards to protect the accused. Here, there are overwhelming safeguards to ensure the accused gets convicted. So you have colleges becoming, in effect, private criminal justice systems and doing it backwards and really badly, sticking a thumb in the eye of the Constitution. And that's what is caught my attention, and that's the takeaway from this. It's not about the fact that one male gets the short end of it and a female, perhaps, gets an unfair advantage. That's one against one while we can care about that. To me, I'm very process-driven, and the process is so messed up up with everybody doing the wrong role, and that's what really got me enraged with Kathy's piece. Uh, yeah, 
and I, I, I think I, I think your points are very well taken. And again, you know, this is something that the federal government is continuing to push. Um, actually, last month, uh, just before the State of the Union, uh, the, uh, the the White House Council on Women and Girls. Uh, released a new report on uh, sexual assault and uh, and government policy, in which they were recommending that there's going to be a new task force that that is going to get like 60 days to come up with even new recommendations of um, uh, handling sexual assault on campus. There's all sorts of phony statistics that are being thrown about, and again, you know, tending very heavily toward the presumption of guilt. Uh, if we have time, I'll give you just one example. Uh, this uh, the, this uh, report from the White House says uh, that there's a study showing that, you know, only 2 to 8 percent of um, accusations of rape are false. Now, first of all, even if that is true, you know, 2 to 8 percent is really not a very trivial figure. It doesn't really mean that you should be looking at a charge and say, oh, we're just going to assume that it's true because, you know, the vast majority of these charges are true. You know, if you're looking at, like, a, a 2 to 8 percent probability that it's false, it's really not very trivial. But the other thing that is even more remarkable, if you look at the study that they cite as evidence of this, uh, this is a study that looked at something like 10 years' worth of, um, of uh, rape charges uh, or sexual assault charges in a large university. What they concluded was in that study something like 6% of the charges were definitively shown to be false. Uh, something like 35% of charges were, in fact, found to be true and were prosecuted. And that leaves the, this large number of over 50% of charges where essentially the investigators couldn't determine whether it was true or not. So essentially the study looks at these results and says that, well, we've got, an, we've got a 6% rate of false charges. And then the implicit assumption from the White House is that all of the rest were accurate charges. So basically what they're saying is, and this is really quite remarkable, what they're saying is in every case in which you cannot definitively prove that a charge is false, we are going to make the presumption that it's true. Now, what is that? It's a presumption of guilt, right? Because it really turns around the burden of proof completely, where instead of proving that a charge is true, you now actually have to prove that it's false, you know, in order to uh, have a to, to have a belief in the person's innocence. That is a presumption of guilt, and that is what I really find so scary about it. And we here in America, we cherish, we cherish. I think this is true across the board. Everybody cherishes the. Uh, protections given to us in the criminal justice system by the Constitution, the right to confront your accuser, the right to have a trial by jury of your peers in a criminal case, uh, the presumption of innocence, the high burden which the state has to prove guilt, the presumption of innocence, how we can take all of those cherished parts of what it means to live in America and tear them up and stomp them into the ground and act and say on college campuses all of those rules that are part of America's DNA get 
torn up and thrown away in the special case where there is a young man and a young woman who disagree on what happened on a night when both parties had emotional uh, involvement and there may have been alcohol involved and who knows what else, that in that special circumstance, we're going to decide that none of the protections in our Constitution apply, and we are going to stomp on the rights of the males. Now, nothing Kathy and I have said in any way diminishes the significance and the ugly nature of sexual assault. Oh, absolutely this, not. Yeah, this is yeah. about process, yeah. and there's nothing yeah. that ought to deny a male or a female the yeah. procedural yeah. safeguards on college that you have once you leave the halls of Ivy. And that's yeah, that's and the yeah, message of this show. One point that I think is important, uh, will we have a couple of minutes left, I think. We have 30 uh, seconds, I, I Kathy. You get the last word. Okay, I think there's also a real concern, and that was another concern of mine, that there's going to be a bleed-over, so to speak, from this into the real world. Because we have students who are, you know, a lot of people are going to college now, and if this is how they view sexual assault in college, how are they going to think about it if they ever end up in a criminal jury in the real world? You know, that is, I think, another, another serious concern to think about. Is this going to spill over into the criminal justice system? Kathy, thank you so much for your piece. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time this afternoon. Um, Kathy's piece is guilty until proven innocent in the January 2014 uh, edition of Reason magazine. Uh, I'll be back in 90 short seconds with John Rothman. We are going to discuss school vouchers, a wedge issue in the 2014 elections. Who's right and who's wrong? You get to vote, you get to participate. 800-345-5639. Back in 90 short seconds. You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show on Talk 910. Welcome back. To the Bob Zadig Show. I'm your host, Bob Zadig, every Sunday at noon on Talk 910. Thanks so much for listening. 800 345 5639. 800 345 5639 to join the conversation. Thanks so much for staying with us on this Super Bowl Sunday afternoon. I'm happy to welcome back into the studio. Command performance, return engagement, John Rothman. Uh, John has been good enough to join me in the studio on this Sunday afternoon. The topic that I thought we'd have a great time talking about is the growing, contentious wedge issue in American politics of school vouchers. Now, school vouchers, the issue of school vouchers is a subset of the issue of what is commonly called school choice. School choice is a, is a 
is a policy issue in America, probably started by Milton Friedman. Uh, Milton Friedman was a strong advocate of breaking the public school monopoly um, which the federal government uh, had all of the powers over and of exposing the important process of public school education to private choice so that parents and students, uh, but I'll say parents, can pick the vendor who's going to be providing the education to the children, and that is to encourage charter schools, private schools, and all and homeschooling, all other alternatives, so that parents can pick and choose how to educate their children. Needless to say, when you are attempting to break up a monopoly, whether it is the U.S. Steel Trust, whether it is Standard Oil, or any other monopoly, dare I say Microsoft— but they got broken up uh, by the forces of the market. Uh, if you are seeking to undo a monopoly, the folks who benefit from the monopoly are not all that happy about it. In this case, the threatened uh, group of people who are threatened by breaking up the monopoly are the teachers' unions, the teachers' administrators, and all of those government types who benefit from being the only ones to provide public education. Think post office, if you will. So uh, school vouchers, uh, here's the issue on school vouchers, just so you can follow the discussion between John and myself. The, the system of school vouchers uh, starts with the process that rather than federal government using tax dollars to give money to public schools so that teachers are government employees and administrators are government employees, rather than the government giving the money directly to the schools, the government will give the money to the parents. And in the words of Lamar Alexander, we'll get to him in a moment, uh, the government will pin $2,000 onto the clothing of the student, and the student will spend his voucher, his coupon, either in the public school or in a private school, wherever the student wants. The effect of that is to take away funding from the public schools and give it to private schools, parochial schools, or whatever. Uh, and the question is, is the process of school vouchers, which I dare say is growing, but it's still relatively small by percentages, is that healthy for American education? Uh, John, uh, are you generally supportive of school vouchers, or is it a process that you see to be damaging to the uh, the goal, and we'll just let's stipulate on we agree on the goal. The goal is to get American children educated in the most efficient and objective and highest quality way, so they become able to be participating citizens in American democracy. Okay, my answer is first, I've always opposed the school voucher program. I believe that it is destructive to public education. I believe that, that may be a good thing. I believe that public education is the backbone of American democracy, and if you gut public education, we're in deep trouble. Let me explain to you what Lamar Alexander's bill would do. It's important for people to understand this. It would take forty. Uh, it would take twenty-four billion dollars, or about forty-one percent of current federal spending, on elementary and secondary public schools, and allow states 
not individuals, but states, to decide how that money would be spent. Now, for each eligible child based on family income, we are told an average of about $2,100 of federal money would be allocated. Now, I happen to be fairly familiar with this subject, and I do not know a school, parochial or or private, where you can spend $2,100 and be able uh, to get an education. Most of the private schools here in San Francisco have tuitions that run anywhere from $30,000 to $15,000. Some of the Catholic schools are a little bit cheaper, but they are constantly in need of money. And as you know, they've been closing these schools because they can't afford to keep them open. Uh, The voucher program, in my judgment, also is a very destructive one in terms of its approach. Not only is it not affordable, not only is it going to hurt public education, but I disagree with you profoundly, which I know you're happy about, <laughs> uh, on uh, who the lobby is for public schools. My kids went through public school, Bob. So did I. And they got a tremendous my, – my younger son is still in a public school, getting a tremendous education. I encourage in public schools more parent involvement. There is more fundraising going on in all the public schools because there isn't enough money. And as for the teachers' unions, I don't view the teachers' unions as the great enemy. Most teachers that I know, and I know a lot of teachers, are outstanding individuals who care deeply. Are there abuses in the system? Yes. But I would remind you of how many schools where vouchers have been used have been closed because they are incompetent and unsupervised and with terrible problems. So... I have to tell you, when I look at Lamar Alexander and the Republicans, I think they're dead wrong. One other quick point. The argument that Lamar Alexander is in part making is that this will help minorities, that minorities will be uh, enhanced in terms of their educational opportunity. Uh, I have to tell you that I disagree profoundly with that. And all you have to do, Bob, with all due respect, is take a look at what's happening in Oakland. I mean, this this is a tragedy because in the end, what will strengthen America is a strong, vital public school system that is workable, affordable, and encourages the best people to go into teaching. Uh, 800-345-5639. Can you say that one more time slowly? 800-345-5639 to call and tell John that you agree with me. Uh, or, <laughs> or to tell me you agree with John. 800-345-5639. John, uh, about 85 or 86 times in your comments, you talked about how important public education is. Uh, I would agree with one word of deletion, public. Uh, We can, let's start with, let's drill up. Let's start with education is important. Now, once we, we agree, and we agree on that, of course we do. Once, once we agree that education is important, what makes Public education, that is education where the vendor is government, what makes that per se, per se, better than the alternative, which I guess is private education? It seems to me we want quality education, and in America, we have, it is part of our gut that in a competitive environment, whether it's the Super Bowl or whether it's uh, a consumer product or anything else, the the best determiner of 
what is best is the marketplace. Rubbish. Nonsense. Absolutely ridiculous. That isn't true. Bob, I want you to think logically. What you want is to I make... I thought I was, but go ahead. Yeah. What you want <laughs> is to make... How silly of me. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Zadig and I are good friends. We're having a lot of fun How here. How silly of me. I thought I was being logical. No, I lost my head, completely John. illogical. Because uh, I could cite this in many areas where you think you're spending money and you're getting something and you're not. Look, let me be very clear about this. Let's assume I wanted my son, who was 15 years old, to go to one of the best private schools here in San Francisco. It would cost me at least... Bob, $40,000 a year. Now, if I have choice, if that's what this is all about, choice. So, Bob, you need to provide me $40,000 to send my kid to a school. And I'm going to tell you something. The answer is no. Lamar Alexander is proposing $2,100 if you meet the requirement. I'll give you another example of what bothers me about this. Who really pushes for vouchers? Private uh, religious institutions. Uh, the Catholic schools in particular have pushed very hard for vouchers. Three times they put this measure on the state ballot, and three times the people of California said no. I happen to believe in a firm separation of church and state. Me too. I believe that the minute you get into this voucher question, what you have is the opportunity for religious institutions to receive public funding. And I'm going to make one other quick comment. I said that this would take, if Alexander's bill is passed in the Senate, $24 billion, 41% of current federal spending on the elementary and secondary level. You gut public education if you take away that money, pure and simple. So what it does is it doesn't open up choice. It limits choice. And what we may see then is the creation of uh, schools, which are substandard, uh, because there will be no real supervision. I believe, and I have, by the way, just so you know this, I have a Master of Arts in Teaching. I have a secondary teaching credential from the state of California. I've been the president of the Washington High School Alumni Association, I hate to say this, for 40 years. I've been deeply involved on every level of my kids' education in terms of PTAs and so forth. Uh, I have researched this, seen it, watched it, battled with it over the voucher propositions that have gone on the ballot. They've lost, Bob, because they fail the ultimate test. They don't make it better. All they do is take money away from public education. My favorite, my favorite economist uh, and uh, two-time guest on my show, uh, Don Boudreau at George Mason University, uh, gave... Um, in writing about the area of vouchers, he drew, uh, John, an interesting parallel. He said, imagine a system of supermarkets where food was provided not by me going down to Molly Stone's or Safeway or whatever supermarket I want based upon price, quality, cleanliness, service, and the like, but rather you had government-owned supermarkets as the only place to buy food. And imagine... But that isn't the case in education. I'm sorry, no, but that isn't the case. You have a choice in this country. If you want to send your kid to a private school or a parochial school, you have that option. There is no monopoly here. You have the option if you're rich. You don't have the option... Excuse me, you're mistaken again. You have the option (laughs) of applying, and there are plentiful scholarships in private schools and in Catholic schools in particular. Uh, And most of the uh, evangelical Christians schools provide great scholarship opportunities as well. The same thing applies, by the way, in in public universities. Take colleges. You have a choice of going to Harvard and spending $50,000 a year or going to UC Davis and probably getting away room board and tuition at $20,000 a year. 
We have choice, Bob. What this does is to take away choice for millions of Americans who rely on public education as their vehicle and all of the advantages of public education. You take away 41% of funding for public education, give it to the states without appropriate supervision, without appropriate uh, teaching credentials, with all of those things which are so essential. You know what you do? You create a disaster. Uh the audience, uh, my audience being sophisticated, um, has just picked up the incredible inconsistency in your last comment. Oh, explain and, it to me. Go ahead. 800 345 to help me explain it to John. But until you call, I will carry the laboring off. Uh, <laughs> in, um, uh, we have in Washington and at the state level, but let's focus on Washington, Pell Grants and other uh, economic supports to people who can't otherwise afford to go to college. It depends. Uh, I, I happen to know— There was a comma, and I was going to finish good, the good. sentence. I want to hear uh, it. Yeah. I didn't make my punctuation clear enough. Good. Comma, uh, and, and those students are take federal grant money and spend it in any college they want. They don't have to, they are not required to go to a state school because that's all they can afford. They get a Pell Grant, which will help them go to a any more expensive school. school, any school. And it can be, by the way, a religiously oriented school like Notre Dame or, or any other. And why can't, so wouldn't that system, which works, work even better at the public school and high school level, uh, in spades, where students are given grants if they need the money, mm -hmm. and they can spend it in a public school if they want. Let the schools compete, and they will get better. The post office got better once there was FedEx and UPS. What? Have you mailed a letter lately? Have that, you seen how the costs have gone up? On parcel delivery, they've gotten better. Have you seen the cost of what... Bob, I don't know where you live. The cost goes Bob. up because they're federal employees and because oh, the postal Bob. workers are overpaid. Bob, FedEx Bob. is not overpaid. Bob, give me a break. And you, are, you are asking for something in public education, so I want you to answer me a question. If you take away from the public schools 41% of their current funding, you take it away, what happens to the public schools? Um, they have to get by with less Okay, and do you know, have you been in a public school lately? A um, uh, couple of years ago, okay. I taught one class Okay, in let me say something. School. I'm in public school all the time, Bob. They struggle for every penny. It's, it's, it's just rubbish. Bob, let me ask you another question. Is there a private school where you can attend for $2,100? No. Name one. No. Good. I rest my case. Um, <laughs> you, you haven't proved anything other than the fact that the vouchers should be for more money. And don't take Lamar oh, Allen. You want more money? Have, oh, wonderful, Bob. You want to increase taxes? There's a 50-50 chance that Julie, our caller, will agree with me. 50-50 <laughs> chance. So let me, let me see if I can get a little support from Julie. Julie, welcome to the show. How are you this afternoon? Oh, I'm doing fine. Just laughing so hard. It's so great to hear John's voice. Oh, Julie, thank you. It's what such about a pleasure. Bob's voice? Well, I have feelings too, Julie. I have your voice too. I have feelings just like everybody else. Oh, I What's thought on? you were the Simon Legree here. What's Go ahead, on your Julie. mind, Julie? Well, the reason.
reason that I'm calling is because I agree with John. And oh, God. Uh, as, as a five-year-old and a six-year-old, I was introduced to the Bible. And it terrified the living daylights out of me. You know, that Holy Ghost and that talking snake and the God that could see everything? As a little five-year-old, I went out looking for that God that was everywhere. At night and day, I couldn't find him. I went looking for that talking snake. My dad told me I couldn't (laughs) look for the talking snake because there were rattlers, and I had to be aware of them. And my God, the Holy Ghost, I knew you could see through them. (laughs) How was I going to get the Holy Ghost? I was supposed to get the Holy Ghost to get the Holy Ghost. (laughs) And I could not ask any questions. No adult would address it. Can you imagine if they had introduced that while I was going through public education? And why did you go to Catholic school? I didn't go to Catholic school. I was raised a Catholic. You were raised a Catholic. So how is... how is your experience and your fear of, uh, by the way, I'm Jewish, so I have a little less sensitivity to this talking snake, uh, but how did your uh, experience as a five- and six-year-old, what did that teach you about the merits of giving your parents the option and the economic wherewithal to send you to a private school or a public school? Gave them the option to at least get me an education where there weren't any ghosts and any snakes and any uh, God that could see everything that, that was there. I got the real education, the three A's. I got the what I really needed to, to learn in life. But of in course, education. you could have gone to a non, um, if there were vouchers, your parents could have sent you to, if they chose to do so, to a, um, a non sectarian. A private school, uh, a school other than a public school, and you could have gotten that non-sectarian, non-religious education as well. Julie, I just want to point out to Bob that if you can find me such a school at $2,100 for a year-long education, I will buy you anything you want. Oh, that would be perfect. <laughs> uh, you, uh, <laughs> Julie, thank you so much for the call. Julie, um, thank you so much for the kind words. And John needed the help, so he's very relieved that you called. Uh, now, John, you keep on focusing on $2,100, which is this random number in a random bill. Nope, sorry, that- you're wrong again. This is a consistent number that was used, and I'm going to tell you how it was first arrived at. Three times it's been on the California ballot, and each time it's been around $2,000. And the reason is because in the old days, that was the cost for a parochial school education for a year. Now, the problem is that Lamar Alexander, who is a Republican, is still living back in the old days, uh, and he hasn't caught up with the current costs. And as former Secretary of Education, he should know better than that. And Bob, look, no one is, is opposed to choice. I think people should have the right to choose where they go to school. But it's the individual responsibility, and a voucher is a state responsibility, and you as a libertarian who wants the state less involved should know better, because what this will do is create a whole new level of bureaucracy. What if there was a—John, uh, let's take a step back from—it's always hard— to start from the status quo and say, let's change it. So I'll invite you and our listeners to not start with the biased world of we have public education and we're trying to undo something because when you try to undo something, there are so many vested interests and so much established behavior. It's much easier to start from scratch. So 
I'd like to posit a hypothetical. Let's imagine we we only had think supermarkets. We only had a system of private education. There was no public school at the elementary school and kindergarten and high school level. There was none. Now, um, and it was just all private, and parents did what they wanted. We would be concerned, I suspect, well, parents might not send their kids to school, and we would grow up with an uninformed population, and our the voting process would be even worse than it is now. So, so government has a stake in an informed citizenry. So the government says to encourage people to go to school, albeit there's a whole range of private schools, we will give parents a voucher. So there is no public schools. There's no teachers' union. There's no public schools. There's just private schools. And the government gave a voucher. And that would be determined in the political process. Whether it's five grand or two grand, it doesn't matter. I'm talking about the process. Would the country be worse off or better off than a country where there is a public school system? Now, remember, the government could still set the standards. I have no problem ever with the government setting standards. I have a problem with the government being the primary or the the sole vendor. Government should set the standards, and government can provide the money to to the consumers, but just not be the vendor. What's wrong with that? Well, first of all, uh, government is not in the position of running the schools in the sense that you're describing it. Of course they are. No, they aren't. That's why we have elected school boards. That's why we have uh, teachers who are credentialed and and administrators who are credentialed. There are controls within the system. But I would point out to you that today you do have choice. You do have choice. You can send your kid to a public school, no, a no, private school, to, or a Please speak to school. my question because it really helps frame the issue. Imagine a world, John, where there never was any public schools. I can't because it wouldn't work, Bob. Why? Tell me because, why it wouldn't well, work. That's the what. key. If it had worked, we would have done it. Why did Benjamin Franklin propose the idea of public education and Dewey? Why did they do that? Because they believed that it was the obligation of a government to provide for people the best educational opportunity. And I want to point out— I question the verb. You say provide. The government should provide the wherewithal to get an education, but not be the provider. Is, is. Come on, Bob. What do you think the government does? We have a public school board. We elect those people. They are accountable to us. Uh, We have— a State Department of Education that defines who a good teacher is. I don't know if you've been into a school which is uh, uh, run by vouchers and how many across the country have been disallowed because there isn't the proper control. Then the customers will leave. 800-345-5639, 800-345-5639. You have a few minutes left to join the conversation with John Rothman and myself. We are talking about school vouchers. Should we break the governmental education monopoly? No, it's not a monopoly. That is not correct. I can tell you that most of my friends have children in private school. They made the decision. I have my kid, a nice Jewish boy, played on a Catholic school basketball team. Those parents chose.
chose to put their kids in a Catholic school. The idea that there is an educational monopoly is ridiculous. What we're asking, what Senator Alexander is asking, is to take 41% of current federal spending, take it away from public education and give it to parents at a $2,100 voucher when you can't afford to go anywhere for $2,100. Bob, this is unrealistic. That's why it will not happen. And if it did, God help this country. You didn't answer my question as to let's imagine a world with no public education, whatever. Let's imagine a world in which there's no war, where we have no defense budget. I don't deal in let's imagine. I deal with what's real. with no Democrats? (laughs) No, no. No, no. In your case, you would not want Democrats or Republicans. You just want libertarians. Good point. And I would point out to you that is not realistic either. But as we get rid of as we, a world of only libertarians, let's go incrementally. First, get rid of the Democrats, then we'll get rid of the Republicans, but let's do it incrementally. You see your political bias is being revealed we in this program. We have one quick caller. We have Diana in San Mateo. Diana, you have a couple of seconds. What's on your mind this afternoon? Well, first of all, I work for San Francisco School System, Uh-oh. and not everyone is credentialed. Not all good, not all schools are good, like Washington High School. Uh, you need to go to the other schools where the kids are not getting educated. And as far as elected board members, most of them are backed by the union. The union runs the schools, not California, and. Well, let me answer you and tell you that I spend a lot of time, not just at Washington, but I'm very familiar with the public schools here in San Francisco. Most of them do an outstanding job, uh, and I don't care where you go uh, in terms of, of public education. I take a look at a school like Mission, which was really in very bad shape, which came back because of parent support. Uh, um, and I don't know if Judy's listening, but her, her role there was critical. Uh, you can go out to a school like Lincoln, which once lost its accreditation and is now one of the outstanding schools in this country. Uh, and I dealt with middle schools as well, because my children went through that system. And I know there are problems, but I cannot believe, nor will I accept, that the idea of a voucher system will improve the system. One other quick point. You're right. There are people who are not credentialed because they're brought in on special credential, as you are very familiar, because they offer a particular talent or ability Uh, that is needed. Yes, (laughs) very often. That is the case. You didn't teach in the school where I did, did you? No, I would love it. You don't have the background that I have. No, it's true. You don't have the background with the union. Yes, I I do. I beg your pardon. I do understand the unions. I understand what they do and how they do it. And there are deficiencies. Well, I do. And there are deficiencies without any doubt, but I will tell you that on balance, they do one heck of a fine job. Diana, thank you so much for your You're call. Welcome. We appreciate you being thank a listener. Thank you, Diana. And thank you for joining the conversation, Diana. We really appreciate it. Uh, okay, John, so in summing up, uh, I'll, I'll say my bit for 20 seconds, then you get the last 20 seconds. Uh, I am not anti-public education per se. I am simply pro-increased competition. Anything that creates a competitive environment so that nobody can take their job for granted, I support. John, you get the last word. Competition exists. There are public schools, private schools, parochial schools. Your envisioning of that is absolutely essential, but I would remind you that public education is the backbone of American democracy, and that's why I support it. Thank you so much for listening to the Super Bowl of American politics. John and Bob discussing school vouchers. I'll be back next Sunday. Thanks so much for listening. Go Niners. Susan, kicking out the man. It's a desperate man.